So one of the great medieval um, projects that many rabbis undertook was where are the 613 mitzvot, right? The most famous version, of course, is the Rambam Sefer Mitzvot, which is the most thorough, and especially his, um, his introduction, where he kind of has nine, nine um, or ten sh- ways how you would determine if something is a mitzvah or not. And then there's the Ramban's commentary. There's a lot going on. The most popular Sefer Mitzvah, and Rav Sadi Gon writes one in the Sefer Mitzvah. There's a million, not a million, there's five or ten versions of this in the medieval period. The most popular one is the Sefer Achinuch. So the Sefer Achinuch is an anonymous work written in the 1300s from the school of the Rambam. He agrees with the Rambam basically on what are they considered the mitzvot. And the only question the Sefer Achinuch, Sefer Achinuch writes a much more popular version. And in the Sefer Achinuch, you will find certain philosophical positions, many of them actually just adopted from the Rambam, um, as far as the mitzvot go. Okay, so there is a very famous work called the Mincha Achinuch, which is a 18th and 19th century, I think, commentary where he fleshes out in great Eastern European rabbinic fashion all of the particulars of any given mitzvah. But for, we're not going to deal with the Mincha Achinuch. Now we're just going to deal with the Sefer Achinuch. So if you look in the middle column, is the, is the Sefer Achinuch. So this is Mitzvah Kuf Pei Zayim. It's the 187th Mitzvah in the Torah. So he writes, L'chasot Adam Achar Zvichat Chayahov. So the mitzvah is to cover the blood after the slaughter of a bird, uh, an a-, a wild animal or a bird. Shinamar, as the pasuk says, we'll see this pasuk is going to be very relevant. So after you trap or you hunt a wild animal or a bird, that you will eat and you will pour out his blood and you will cover it with dirt. And this is a mitzvah. It's very much still no Hague today. Um, it's taken very seriously, actually. The Gemara says that if you were to, if you were to, somebody was going to do the mitzvah of Kisu Adam and you did it instead of them, you owe them like five or ten gold coins because you took their mitzvah away from them, which is a big amount of expensive that is, because it's considered a, uh, to this day, actually a skula for having, what, to, for having uh, a good parnasa, for doing well in business. So there are businessmen that go out of their way to, get to Rishlita and start covering the blood, whatever. Um, but there's an interesting point that the Chinuch makes that I, I think actually it, it is part of what I w- really want to deal with in the, at least the first part tonight, which is like, and, and I, I don't want to editorialize, but I will for a minute. Okay, one of the diseases of our contemporary world is that when we ask religious questions, and this is really true in specifically modern Orthodox context, but it's often true, I find, a lot of other places, is we ask, you know, is this allowed or is this not allowed? As if that is actually a moral judgment. Meaning, just because something is allowed does not mean it's actually a good thing to do. Right? I can repeatedly smash my head against this wall. Okay, that does not mean it is a smart thing to do, but it is just something that I can do, right? And the, the real lack of distinction between what is allowed and what is proper, and the flip side would apply also. Maybe if it's not allowed, sometimes it is the right thing to do, but that's for other classes that I've given here on Hasidut, so I don't want to deal with that part of the, part of the equation right now. But the, so what I think is really interesting here is the really, at least definitely as far as meat consumption goes, and far as a lot of different consumption patterns go, the really tenuous connection between what you can do and maybe what you should do, okay? And how 
Already in the Torah, when it comes to meat-eating, you see that this is already something that you can do, but you probably should not, or maybe should avoid, right? We saw this already, this is not even, you don't need midrashim, you just need to open up a Tanakh and see such a thing, right? I mean, it's not... Um, but let's talk about this mitzvah Kisui Adam, because this is a really interesting mitzvah Kisui Adam. We know you can't eat the blood, because the blood is, you know, the life force, and we talked about what that is. Look what it says here. So he says, Mishor Mitzvah. So if you read the Sefer Achinach, he will introduce what he calls the Shor Sheha Mitzvah, which is the, uh, the, the, uh, the reasons of the Mitzvah, or the, the, the roots of the Mitzvah, right? That's going to be his, you know, his Ta'amei HaMitzvah, his philosophical specul- speculation, right? He says, L'fisha nefesh Yabadam, that the, the life of the animal is in its blood, right? Without the blood circulating, it can't live. K'mo Shamar and Bisudam, like we explained previously in the Torah's prohibition of eating blood. V'lachain, and therefore, Ra'u'ilanu l'chasod ha'nefesh, it is proper for us, and listen to the language he uses, to cover the life of the animal, u'lehastiro me'ein ro'av, and to hide it from those, from the eye of those that can see, terem, before nochal basar, before we eat the meat. There's a certain element of like hiding the crime, right? Because it is possible for us to acquire a bit of cruelty. To eat the meat. And the blood is, is lying right in front of us. So that's already like a really interesting thing, you know, that the Torah, you know, look, you know, we're eating the meat, but let's be honest here, like, let's recognize that it was alive. And there's an interesting thing is that, like, you have to recognize the fact that, like, you can, to allow you to kind of, like, just total consumption and any concern, right, it starts to turn you into a cruel, monstrous person, right? And it's also, this other interesting, and on the other hand, like, we want to kind of hide it, you know. Now look what he says here. When it comes to domesticated animals, we're not commanded. When you, and we'll see this is very important a little bit later on, when you would slaughter an animal for sacrifice, so you would, one of the parts of the is called Kabbalah Adam, you would actually take a vessel and catch the blood, right? And the blood meant the blood coming from the throat of the animal as it was dying, right? I don't want to, if anyone's a little, I apologize for the last time we read. But the point is, is that like, you know, when the, when the, when the Torah talks about Kabbalah Adam, it means the Dam HaNefesh, which is the blood that comes out of the neck. Um, that was, he said, caught to, as a kapara, as an atonement for our sins. That, that is true. And, and look, there's this very long literature about, um, about how, you know, like at a certain point, you know, the violence of the sacrifice is there to remind us, you know, of the tenuousness of our lives, right? So, he says, when it comes to, and so what kind of animals did you bring on this temple, in the temple? Domesticated animals, not wild animals, right? So he says, the Yefshak, you can't do Kisui Adam if you actually need the blood, right? You're using the blood there, right? You can't cover it because you actually need it. And to a certain degree, you know, the, the violence and the sacrifice needs you to actually see the blood, as opposed to eating the meat, which you don't want to see the blood, right? The achar shekain, lorazda Torah, l'chalek l'anu bein muktashim Once you've already kind of allowed it for, you're, you're not covering the blood for some type of slaughter of domestic animals, we're not going to make the distinction between them. 
he says, "V'im gam b'min ha'ofod yesh ben karevil gam mizbech muad lo davar muad lo tachos atar lo olam." What about at birds? There are some birds that are brought in the temple, but the fact is, majority of birds are not brought in the temple. So therefore, most of domesticated animals, where majority are brought in the temple, right? We say, look, once in the temple, we can't cover the blood. So therefore, we're not going to tell you to make a distinction because it already becomes confusing. When it comes to birds, we wouldn't even have to make that distinction because there's so few birds that are brought in the temple, it wouldn't be an issue. Um, and then he goes, Midine HaMitzvah, then he says what the laws of the mitzvah are. Okay, it's actually, that's why the Chinuch is the most popular book, because it's the easiest to read. And it's also the most organized, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's a pleasure. Hey, look at that. You know, um, what's interesting here, and I, I just want to, you know, you know, start with this, is you, you have like a really interesting thing. You have a mitzvah, and you have an allowance, right? And you have like a, still a very tenuous relationship to it, right? That it's not all fine and dandy just because it is allowed, right? Now, this as we're going to see in a minute, is like totally am- is really amplified, not totally, but really amplified um, when it comes to some of the real, some of the interesting um, traditional opinions as far as meaning goes. Meaning that it's an interesting question, and just even if you're not going to generate quote unquote halacha, right? So when you generate halacha, how, how would one go about generating halacha? No. People realize now, and I mean like in the last 20 or 30 years, that generating halakha is not necessarily just the classic exercise of, you know, does the Rambam quote this source or not? Does this? But it's also part of the culture, right? You know, halakha is influenced by the culture and, is about, and, and the narrative, right? This is what people are writing a lot on today. So as we're reading through these sources, I want to kind of think about those things. Meaning, how, how would you, you know, you know, make the make it you know prescriptive. I don't really know, but I, it's really interesting to think about. That was me closing the book. Um, it's really interesting for me to think about um, what what these sources might mean, and then we'll get to the to the women's shafting in a minute. So let's see a really interesting piece here. Start with the first piece, okay? And another, well, let's see. The ish ish midnei Israel. Okay. This is the Pasuk in Acharimot, in the 17th chapter of Vayikra, Pasuk Yigimel, which has the following. The ish ish, any man, okay, interesting double language, Mibnei Yisrael, from the Jewish people, Umin Hagera Garvatacham, or the strangers that sojourn among them, Asher Yatsud who hunts or who traps a trapped Chaya, wild animal, oof, or bird, asher yochal, that you will that you may eat, v'shafachatamo, you spill his blood, v'chisahu ba'afar, and you will cover it with dust. Okay, this pasuk is the source for the halacha that we just saw in the Sefer Achinah of Kisohedam. What is odd about this pasuk? Great. So number one is there's three double languages: ish ish, ger hagar, yatsud seid. Good. That's number one. So already, if you are, if you have a midrashic imagination, you're already, you know, li- you know, you know, licking your chops, realizing that there was going to be a lot of great midrash here because you know why all the double languages. Um, what else is odd about it? Just as far as these things go. Well, here's my question. What about, and again, the Midrash is going to deal with this, so I'm kind of cheating. But, I, but what about the animals you don't hunt? Right? 
But it was your own trap. Like when you raise chickens, you know how you trap it? You stick your hand in and grab it. Right? So, does, does Kisui Hadam not apply for those animals? doesn't apply for domesticated animals. That's specifically excluded, right? Chaya and Oaf are the only two mentioned, right? But what about an Oaf, a bird, that you just grab, right? So, listen to what the Midrash says. So if you turn to the Sifra, um, the Sifra is the Midrash Halacha on um, Sefer Vayikra. So it says like this, Yisrael, El Yisrael, Ger, El Hager. So it says, Mibne Yisrael, and then Hager. Hager, the extra, or the extra hay, L'Rabot Neshe Hagerim, to include the wives of either converts or sojourners. Bitocham, in your midst, L'Rabot Nashin Vavadim, to include women and slaves. Meaning, Kisir Adam, as the Midrash Halach, as the Sevachinach said, is a mitzvah that everyone has to do. Okay, the extra language there, at least is there to tell you, that everyone is required to do this, which is already interesting, that they make this like an absolute rule of kisu Adam, right? This is like something that everyone has to do, and the, the, in the rabbi's mind, the pasuk has to go out of its way to make sure that everyone is doing this. It's already like very interesting, that emphasis. So then the, the Midrash Nim came, Lama Namar Ish Ish Namar Ish Ish so why does it have to say ish ish any man right it says ish twice which means a man a man but the double emphasis means any man so it says like this what ish ish is any person is why because the puzzle says Asher Yatsud that which you hunt or trap that's only telling me that someone who hunted an animal would have to do kisuyadam. Lakach, what if you bought an animal? Yarash, you inherited. Somebody gave you a chicken for, for, for Shabbos present. Minayin, how do we know that I have to do kisuyadam? Lomar, ishish. Any person. Any person, no matter how you, you came into getting this animal, is required to do this mitzvah kisuyadam. Now listen to this, this is the key point. Ainli elatzad. All I know right now is an animal that I hunted or an animal that I trapped. Neat seller, but what about one that's, by definition, pre-trapped? Kigon, for example. Avaz and Vitarnagolan. Ducks and chickens, where you don't need to trap them. They're already trapped, meaning once you have them in a pen, it's like they're already trapped. Talmud Lomar, Tzad, Mikol Makum. So the extra Tzad is there to tell you, no matter how you got it. So now listen to what the Midrash says. Imkain, if that's the case, Lama Nemar Asher Yatsud. Why does it say the animal that you trap? Meaning, if it means any animal, no matter what it is, why does the puzzle say the animal that you trap? Let's do this for. Now listen to what it says. Rebbe Omer, Rebbe says, Limdecha Torah Derech Eretz. The Torah is teaching you proper conduct. Shelo Yochal Adam Basar. A person should not eat meat. Ella behazmana zel. Only in this context. So what does that mean? So the Midrash says that the only way you should eat meat is in the context of trapping. What, what does that mean? It's the context of hunting. So if you look, just skip the next source. Skip the, the Chafetz Chaim wrote a very famous uh, 
not so famous actually, but he did write a commentary on the Mishra Shalacha. It's actually quite unfamous, but he did write it. It's in, so look, what, just skip to that second part. He says, a person should not always eat meat. They shouldn't come to be impoverished because they're always eating meat. You should treat your meat consumption like someone who needs to hunt it. You don't eat meat. That the only way you eat meat, you treat your meat consumption as if you need to trap it. Meaning, don't have meat as the default option. What is the Pasuk telling us, according to this Midrash? That the default option for dinner is not meat. Meat should be treated like something you need to trap, and therefore it has a burden, has its difficult. And therefore, as a result, when the Midrash says, means that the, the Pasuk is saying, the animal or the food that you trap is, the way you eat meat should be as if you had to trap it yourself. You have to, have to hunt it yourself, and therefore, it should not be something you eat all the time. Now, again, interesting, because is like a really interesting type of language. We heard it before, right? It's, Torah is teaching you a moral or a positive lesson, or a moral lesson, which means what? On the one hand, it's not a law. On the other hand, it's a lesson that you're supposed to be learning. Yeah? Um, on the other hand, here in the Chafetz Chaim, he's saying, like, don't do it because, so, like, that you don't become poor. So, with him, I'm kind of wondering if he's doing it for morality, for, like, moral reasons, or for monetary reasons. Hold that thought for a minute. Let's see the... the, the he then has, and again, this is not a very popular piece. Let's see his his extra comment here, and then you'll answer that. I agree with you, because if you look right, the, the previous, the previous right, the parish, previous right, the pre- right, right, the previous parish, which is earlier, just to, just to go, to, to, to solidify your point, so there's a, a, a famous um, commentary on the Sifra by Rabbeinu Shimshon Mishan, the Rosh Mishan, who's one of the Baliatos vote. So there he says exactly what you said. Look what he says. Um, the previous one that I skipped. He's saying actually, what's the 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 the, the midrash mean? He, the Rosh Hashanah says the midrash means that you shouldn't eat meat all the time, and therefore, because of your consumption, because of your hunger, because of your gluttony, become poor and then force other people to pay for your gluttony. Right. So clearly, for Rosh Hashanah, it is purely a Monetary question, right? And therefore, just as, you know, if I trap something, I, it's mine. I did it on my own. I don't have to worry about paying anyone else for it, right? So therefore, according to Rosh Hashanah, when I eat meat, I can only eat meat in that way. Because, which was also like a pretty interesting thing because it does, and we'll see the Gemara really plays on this. It does say that there is a certain limit to your consumption, right, which is financial. Right. And that there is this, the Torah is teaching you a value of limiting your consumption to that which you can afford. The Gemara really explicitly says this. But look at what the Chavetz Chaim says here. Now this is not going to be, this is not a very popular text in certain circles. Let's just read what he says. And based on this Midrash, we can learn a Kalvachomer. When it comes to meat, which strengthens a person, right? You need protein, you need fats, whatever it is. A person has to be careful not to eat too much of it. Because even though it has a positive effect, right, the either moral or economic force is going to cause you this negative consequence, right? 
How much more so yesh l'adam, a person should leave a hair, to be careful. A person should be careful not to spend his money or to throw away his money on other objects that are not pressing, that are not necessary. And specifically, on things that are just for honor. In our terrible sin, this is a sin that destroys the world. So he's actually, I think, saying that the economic argument is a moral argument as well, right? Meaning, this is an argument against consumption, as consumption, right? And that the argument against consumption, especially conspicuous consumption, right, is something. But it's not even conspicuous consumption, because he says, look, meat is not conspicuous consumption, right? It's something positive, but the point is, this is a classic argument against consumption as a, as a value. The Torah teaches Derek Eretz that you limit your consumption because, and, and it's not necessarily right. It's not a meat argument per se, right? It's just like anti-materialism. Right, right. It's anti, right. A certain type of materialism, right? One hundred percent. Listen again. Chavetz Chaim is living in in, a, in Russia in the turn of the twentieth century. So, I mean, if you read Dostoevsky, you read Turgenev, you read that's the world he lives in, right? Again, if you read it, it's an amazing thing, by the way. I, I was, you go, on to my, you go on YouTube and put in Tolstoy. You actually see a video of Tolstoy working with Russian peasants on their farm. I, I imagine you actually see Tolstoy. Like a video of Tolstoy, I almost had a heart attack. You know what I mean? Like, are you kidding me, right? Who knew, right? You know, until I told you, did you know that? Is that a video of Tolstoy? No, but I knew he worked with peasants. I knew that's how, you know, he was, you know, the king of this anti-materialism. I know that I can actually see a bird, like see him with his long beard. He looks like, you know, my brother, you know what I mean? But, but it was wild. So, but, but it's interesting that the, the anti-consumption argument is framed around meat consumption, right? Yeah. Um, and again, it, one, you know, the, the further questions about, you know, how we spend our money, how we, how we spend our food money, right, can kind of like be framed around these type of things. You know, I'm still, this is still for me a lot of raw material that I'm still trying to, you know, wade through. Um, now, this is kind of really fleshed out, and I would, uh, this is really, really fleshed out in the Gemara in Masechet Chulun. So if you look in the Gemara Masechet Chulun, which is our next source, um, this is the Gemara actually in the chapter called Kisur Hadam. Okay, so there's uh, the Gemara Masechet Chulun is in many ways divided up amongst the various things you would do with an animal that are not sacramental, right? Shefting it and then taking out the Gidanasha, what do you do with the meat, you know, what do you do with the, with the, with the wool, what do you do with the, whatever. So one of the chapters is called Kisui Hadam, right? Which is covering the blood, right? So if you look in the Gemara there, and it really takes it even like many, many steps further, right? It's just like this, Tanarabhan, right? Asher Yatsud, Eliyala Asher Yatsud. Right, that's exactly the same as the Midrash Halacha, right? The English on the next slide. Okay, that's exactly the same as the Midrash Halacha we just saw uh, a minute ago. Now, interestingly, again, just like as far, as far as being generative of Halacha, you look in the Gemara there, it's not quoted in the Shulchmarach. Um, and some of these things are only quoted in the Rambam Hilchodeya, which is in and of itself an interesting work. Because the Rambam has a work called Hilchotea, which are about virtue acquisition, right? As my brother pointed out, a very understudied work, right? But it is, for him at least, part of halacha as well. But you know, 
it was never taken as a serious halacha. It was considered like you know, maybe, maybe a pietistic ideal, but if, for the Rambam, it's clearly not because he's putting it, you know, in the context of halacha, right? And things that he thought were just you know fables or whatever never were worth codifying. But could be that as it may. Then the Gemara continues. Tanur Rabbanan ki archiva and this is we've seen this before. Linda Torah derech eretz shelo yochal adam basar el teavon. The Torah is teaching us derech eretz that you should not eat meat only with an appetite. This phrase, which we saw earlier, but we'll talk about what that means because that that's going to come up in a page from now. So hold that, just underline it or whatever. Question mark it. Um, so then the Gemara continues. Yachol yikach adam in Maybe a person could buy meat in the, in the shuk and eat it. Tamalomar v'zavach tamib korcham mitzunecha. Right, this is the same bright that we saw last time, right? You should eat from your flock and your cattle. Maybe you could kill all of your animals. All of your flock. Okay. So this is exactly the brights that we saw earlier. If you guys remember from last week, this is the brights we saw earlier. Now this addition is important. Mikan Amar Based on this, Rabbi Lazar Ben Azari said the following. He's seeing this Rebbe Lezer ben as not a moral question about meat consumption, but maybe a moral question about consumption in general. Mishigesh lo mana, someone who has a mana, which is, say, a hundred zoos, yikach lepaso litreyarek. If all you have is a hundred mana, is uh, one mana, what you should eat in your pot is a liter of vegetables. Meaning, a poor person should only eat Vegetables. Asaramana, if you have ten, Yichachopaso, Litridagin. You take for your pot a liter of fish. Chamishimana, if you have fifty, Yichachopaso, Litribaso, you take a liter of, of, of meat. Meamana, and if you have a hundred, Yishvatulo, Kader, Bechoyom, do whatever you want on any given day. It's an interesting Gemara, and I would like to hear you, what you think of it, but what the Gemara here at least is saying is, is that, you know, your consumption is really tied into how much money you have, and you cannot eat, you should not eat. I don't know, is it cannot eat or should not eat? I'm not sure, actually, right? But you should not, cannot, slash, eat that which you cannot afford, right? And it's only if you can afford certain things should you be eating, right? We should, let's continue. So then the Gemara then says, Ve'inach emat. So if that's the case, that the last one, if you're wealthy enough, you could eat whatever you want any day. What about the other stuff? In the so it says, Mayor Shabbos, Lever Shabbos. No, what it means to say, and this is a very confusing line in the Gemara, but let's just go with Rashi for now, means that what Rabbi Elizabeth Azari is saying is, is that even if you can afford these things, so you could theoretically cook whatever you want every day, but you should not, you should only eat meat or only eat certain things every Shabbos, right? But the rest of the week, you should actually keep your consumption down. And Amar Rav, Rav says, Rav says we have to be careful to adhere to the words of Rebbe Lezer ben meaning that, according to Rav at least, our consumption of food is something that needs to be tied into what we can afford. The Gemara then continues, and let's just get through all of this and then talk about it. It says, Amar of Yochanan, our father, namely Rabbi Elizabeth Nazari, who wasn't really his father, but okay, was from a family of those that were healthy. So he could eat 
whatever, he didn't have to eat certain foods. Aval kagon anu, but what about us, who are weak? We who are poor must, are not poor, but weak, will take whatever money we have and go to the store owner and say, give me the best food that you have for this amount of money. Meaning we, in our weakness, cannot be particular about what we eat. We can only eat whatever the best food is available at that time. And then, Rav Nachman adds, I'm Rav Nachman, like us, Levian Vochlin, who borrow money in order to eat. Okay, so what are we doing right now? What is the Gemara doing right now? It's setting up like really two competing paradigms, right? The one paradigm is, is that our consumption is really totally based in what we can afford and our economics, right? And the other one says, listen, it's really tied into our health, right? And so you have, and even if it means we can't afford it, we will do it because of our health. The interesting question would be, what if like you have somewhere in the middle, right? Meaning, what happens if you uh, don't necessarily need something for health? Well, where would we, what would we do today, right? Or, you know, what if uh, it's the same prices, right? But it seems to be that the, the paradigm is either here, what we can afford versus what we cannot afford or what is healthy or what is not healthy, right? It is still minimizing consumption, right? It is saying that even beyond the laws of what's allowed, not allowed, there are other considerations that have to go into what we're going to eat, right? Right, and it would seem also that like you know unbridled consumption, you know, and the lack of a health issue would be something that's frowned upon, right? Then the Gemara starts with these great pieces of advice, and um, it's interesting that the advice is a, a real argument of sustainability. Let's see what, what I'm talking about. So the Gemara then continues, if Mishle. Kvasim ulvushecha, migaz kvasim yemulbushecha. When the Pussing Mishlei says to have a happy life, you should have lambs or sheep for your clothing. It means that the shearings of your lamb or your sheep should be your clothing. Umachir sadeatudim, and the price of your field or the, the, the sale of your field should be uh, you know, sheep or whatever, flocks. Now listen to what it's saying. Tell me what the argument is here. It says, Mechir Sadeh, meaning what the Gemara is saying is, sell your field rather than sell your flock. Why? Well, if you have a flock, you have actually something sustainable, right? right? But the Sadeh, isn't that like the vegetable part? Right, but as we'll see in a minute, the flock is more sustainable in the sense that it gives you it gives you a, a, a clothing, it gives you milk, right? It's actually less, certainly to some degree, less dependent on the whims of the weather, right? As long as you can kind of you know, figure out a place to keep your animals, right? Um, then it says, And it'd be enough to have the the milk of the goats. Dayo la Adam. Listen what he says. It's enough for a person. It should be enough for a person to sustain himself from the from the milk of the goats and the sheep that are in his house. And Rashi, I think, adds rather than to kill them. Meaning, live off of the milk and keep the animals alive. Right, rather than kill the animals and have nothing left as a source. 
Lulachmecha, lecha beitecha, for the for the the food and the food of your house. Lachmecha kodem lecha beitecha. What does it say? First, your food is more important than the food of your house. Why Rashi says because you have to. Usually, the husband was the one who was earning the money. So if he didn't eat, he would not be able to work, and therefore no one else would be able to eat either. V'chaim l'narotecha. And you then you will give life to your young your your your, your children. Amar Marzutra Bereid Rav Nachman Marzutra said the son of Rav Nachman said Tain Chaim Lenarotacha, give life to your children. Now this is what it says. What does it mean to give life to your children? What does it mean to give a life lesson to your children? Mikan Limdat Torah Derech Eretz. This is the Torah teaching you the proper way. Shelo Yilmad Adam Epino Basar Ve'ayin. A person should not teach their sons or their children to eat meat and wine. That's pretty interesting, right? But and again, it's 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 actually like no coincidence. This is a very interesting type of Gemara because we know that the Torah sees the food of rebellion for children is basar v'yayin, right? The ben sora or right? The great rebellious child is someone who consumes excesses of meat and wine, right? So this is interesting in the sense that you want to avoid that type of behavior. It's also kind of putting the impetus back on the parents, which is also interesting, right? Where the Torah takes the impetus away from the parents. It's putting the impetus back on the parents, right? It's also saying a general rule, which is like, you know, when you're teaching your kids at young to consume, you should be careful in what they are consuming, right? Then the Gemara um, um, uh, continues um, with different things about, you know, what kind of food you should eat, whatever it is, but I, I want to leave, leave that for now. Um, now, I don't really know what to do with this Gemara, right? I think there's like a lot to do with it, right? And I think it's like really interesting, right? There is a clear ethos of sustainability there, right? There is a clear ethos of living with less, right? There's a clear ethos of teaching your children not to, you know, feel the need to, you know, to live a certain type of life. Um, and as far as um, the other thing goes, so as far as that other line, as far as you should not eat Right? You don't eat meat unless you have an appetite for it. Right? Well, what does that mean? Right? We've been having a very hard time kind of defining that. So if you look, turn the page, you'll see um, this whole discussion, I was unaware of this at the time, appears all over the place. I was not, so in the, it's in the Tosefta and the Sechad Erechim. So if you look in the Tosefta, it's exactly the same as we've seen before. Um, but I just want you to turn to the Tosefta Rishonim. So Sefer Rishonim is a very interesting work Professor Lieberman did, um, which is in some Tosefta's, especially the ones he didn't comment on in his Tosefta Kipshuta. Um, he writes, you know, where various either sources or parallels or whatever. It's kind of like an additional work to Tosefta Kipshuta, specifically for the, a lot of the pieces that he didn't get to when he was writing Tosefta Kipshuta. So he says like this should a person eat meat to satisfy all of their desires and that's what the Tosefta is coming to say is it possible it says like this is it possible that you will have so much meat that it's able to spoil in the pot and it will still be something that makes you hungry, right? You're going to have so much meat there that it's spoiling because there's so much of it. And is that something you would still want? Right? Meaning, when it says, it means that you have an appetite because there is still something that you would want, right? Once you get to that point of nausea, because there's too much of it, right? You don't desire anything anymore, right? So, it's, 
I want to eat meat because I desire it. Only if you desire it, why? Because it's not something that there is too much of, right? So El Te'avon here is being read as an argument saying that you only eat meat as a part of a meal or as a temporary or from time to time as opposed to having it as a steady diet and at a certain point it's so disgusting that you're like throwing up from how much there is already. Okay, so that's, that's that. Okay, so and now the clearest exposition of this, and this is really where, when this is the end of part A tonight, the clearest exposition of this is a, an amazing, amazing commentary of the Kliyakar on the Torah. Okay, now I am not a big Kliyakar fan, generally. Okay, I have not ever found it to be like a, a work that really spoke to me. Okay, but this piece is really amazing. And um, so Kliyakar is a commentary on the Chumash written in Poland in the 1600s. Um, and I want you to just notice a really interesting line he says at the end. When we just think about before we get to that line at the end. Think about what the commentary of Rashi meant to Ashkenazic Jewry, especially at that time, right? Rashi's commentary became like the, and Rashi Tosu really, became like the definitive work for how to understand certain things, okay? So you have, like, at that time, an explosion of super commentaries in Rashi, super commentaries in Tosu, right? Either it's in the Gemara or it's in the Chumash, right? Okay. So bear that in mind. So the Kliyakar is dealing with the Pasuk that says, when the distance is too far from the place that God chose, namely the Ben to put his name there, you will slaughter your animals, your, your cattle and your, and your flock that God has given you as I command you you will eat it in your gates according to the desire of your soul okay right this is the pasuk that allows us to eat meat that wasn't brought as a korban right now I mean, all the elements are there the distance from the temple the slaughtering it the as I commanded you the as I commanded you and um according to the desire of your heart, okay? So, with that being said, second, with that being said, let's see what the Kliyakar says. Hore, he's explaining, She'en adam home achar tavot ki imitochar chavayitera. So point number one is, a person does not swoon after their desires, except for when they are distant from certain things. You only have desires for things that are far away, right? Or because of distance, right? The quotes the Gemara and Brachlid says that a lion um, only swoons over uh, a box of meat that he can't have, right? Not a box of grain, right? Because the meat is something you really want. And he's distant from, right? Therefore it says, God will expand your borders. Now listen to what he's saying. What's the thrust of the pasuk? People saying, I want to eat meat, I want to give in to my desires, right? I desire this, I need this flesh, right? So listen to what he says. This will lead you, that the distance from the temple will lead you to remove the veil of shame from your face. Ad Shetomar, until you get to the point where you will say, with a full voice, Ochla Basar, 
give me meat to eat. So what is eating meat here? It's a lack of shame. Right? The fact that a person will voice their desire to give in to their desires, right? Is a lack of shame. Why? Because you're distant from God. That's an amazing point already, right? That it's the distance from God that will cause the lack of shame, and therefore that's when you will say, Give me this meat to eat. And this is kind of like a little bit of removing the yoke of heaven. Right? The desire to eat meat is kind of like kind of abdicating your, relig- your, your religious you're not beliefs, you're religious practices, right? The lachkor is a mukan shazuchim. The hasibala calls that who kiyar chik mimchama komasherif chayashem. The reason of all this is because God has distant you. You expand your borders. You're far away from the temple. Kikol akarov akarev biyoter al mikdash Hashem yeshalav mora mochut shemayim biyoter. Because anyone who is close to the temple has fear of God. Kemoshenem or mitashitira. Right? You will fear my temple. You'll fear my sanctuary. Right? So he's saying that what that it, 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 listen. It's a, a the, your lack of shame is coming from the fact that your borders have expanded, right? And you're distant from the temple. That from the temple has caused you to have the yoke of heaven. And the distance from God's place causes God to leave your in, inside of you, and therefore all day you will be overcome or rampant with desire. And you won't be afraid or ashamed to say, this is what I want. So it's an interesting thing, right? The Pasuk is already acknowledging the fact that you are distant from God, according to him, and you are therefore not ashamed of voicing your desires. Where does he get this? Well, it's the language of the Pasuk, right? That you're distant from God? Right? Again, we are not, tra- we, until now we're not translating it that way, right? We're translating that, look, I live in Haifa, right? But he's saying that the distance is more, not just a physical distance, but really a psychological distance also, right? Spiritual or psychological distance as well, right? And therefore, he says, God is saying, I allow you hadavar. I allow this to you. So I'm allowing you to do this because I realize that, you know, the distance is causing you to kind of, you know, be overcome with desire. However, not at all times. Ki'im lefrakim. Only temporarily or every once in a while, at the time when your desire overcomes you. So listen what he's saying. He's saying that why is it, why does, going back to that midrash that we learned, right? That that midrash is telling you that what effectively God is saying is, look, this is giving into your desires, right? This is, to a certain degree, the worst of you. This is indicative of a distance from me. And I'm allowing you to do it, but with very limited, very limited conditions, you know, very limited circumstances, right? And it's only in a very, very limited set of, set of circumstances that you would be allowed to. He's taking that midrash very seriously, Right? And listen to how seriously he's taking a look further. Biur hadavarhu. And there's actually an interesting confession here, but we'll see. Biur hadavarhu. The explanation is follows. Shim yargil adam at atzmo lachol min habehemot hamtsuyuni tovabayit. Shor o kasevoyiz. As kol yom mitavet hava gedola. Tava viyargil atzmo biachil ato davar biyom biyomo. It says, if you were just going to eat the animals in your house, then all day you would be, you would get, it would be the desire, Right? 
He's seeing meat as a real food of desire. Food of desire which turns to be your most base desires, right? Your desire for fat and for flesh and for whatever, right? Dominion, etc. It's like, ever watching these food shows, right? So like, you know, it's not like a calm thing when they bring out the meat, right? You know what I mean? I mean, again, it's unfair to ask a certain ethos, but like, you know, the ethos of any of these shows is like, you know, a certain, you know, the worst of you, right? I'm as guilty as the next guy. I mean, I, I can't get enough of these shows, right? But the fact is, is, is that it's, it's re- I was thinking about this a lot last night, actually. I was watching the shows. I was, I was like, you know, you know, thinking about all of this, you know, like, he says, but look, this is what he says. But if you were not to eat meat until you trapped it in the forest or in the desert, an, a wild animal or a bird where there is a sakana, there's a danger. It's also a burden to get to do that. Your desire would be lessened because it's not really worth it, right? Think about it, right? If you actually had to go hunt your meal, you would never eat meat, right? Because I mean, again, I mean, I like having hamburger, but not not that much, you know what I mean, right? You know what I mean? So his point is, is, is that the Torah is telling you, even even though there are domesticated animals, right, that you're not going to hunt, right? It's just not the reality of, of life. But you have to treat your meat consumption like that, right? Meat is a meat of desire, and the fact is, desires need to be checked, right? And therefore, everything you eat has to be eaten in that context, right? That's a typo on my part. There's a couple of typos here. I had to type this in in a very hot library on Sunday, so as a result, there's many, many typos. I apologize. Now he says it's an interesting point, and this is also like so. Yitzchak says to Esav before he gives him the bracha, he says, "Son, go hunt me an animal." Right? So right, the obvious why is he because yeah, he's a hunter, right? That's the obvious shot answer. Why is, why is he doing this? But he's saying no. He's teaching him something. He says, "Go hunt because you are so overcome with your bloodiness and your warfare and whatever." That you don't realize that you know that you're giving into your desires all the time, Asa. Right? What's the proof? Look, you marry whoever you want, you do whatever you want, right? So he sees Yitzhak as not being instructive, like I'm hungry, go hunt me something because you're the hunter. He's saying, go hunt, so you realize that you know it's, it shouldn't be that easy to eat whatever you want, to consume whatever you want, right? That's the muster that Yitzhak is teaching Asa. It's also an interesting, like um, somebody points out that yesterday in Hadar, it's an interesting. Thing. We generally assume that the Esav and Yaakov is the like scholar versus the hunter, and Jews are scholars, and non-Jews are hunters. Right here, it's a different paradigm. Right, it's glutton versus control. Right, go to a kiddush. So you tell me, is that Esav or is that Yaakov? Right, whatever. You know, you lose a hat. I used to say uh, when I was working in the shul. So the kids like like they never eaten before. Right, they you know and. You know, he brought out the poppers or the chillin, and they leave, like like I so I would always scream, no guys, fight as much as you can. It always tastes better when you have someone's finger in there, right? You know, and somebody goes like, yeah, I'm like, no, not not actually, yeah. You know? But the point is, is like, is like, it's an interesting. You, now we, we're setting up really new paradigms, right? For what what is does it mean to be Yaakov or Zayv or Yitzchak? It's like an, right? It's interesting, right? 
It's not the hunter. It's not the act of hunting. Right? We saw earlier this summer how hunting is not for Jews, right? But it's not that hunting is not for Jews. Gluttony is not for Jews, right? Desire, giving into your desires, is not being unconscious about what you eat. That's not for Jews, right? That's a totally different paradigm than we had before. Okay, whatever. Um, why does it say as you eat the deer and the herex or whatever it is so too you should eat this in this specific condition you shouldn't be, it shouldn't be regular right, you don't eat deer you don't eat venison that often why don't you eat venison that often not just because it's lean because you have to go hunt it right and they're not trapped. And because of the burden involved, you eat them much less. So too should you eat regular meat. Okay, so that is how he understands this. And then listen to this last line he puts in, which is amazing. This is a beautiful explanation when you shave and clear, lashon, clear language. Even more than Rashi Meaning, lest you think this is just a drasha, this is a better and clearer exposition of the relevant sources even than Rashi gives. Right, now this is like an amazing, I don't know, like an amazing piece, like, like tons to think about here, right, about what any of this means. And, and again, practically, what would you do with this? I mean, there's a lot practically to do with this. Um, but I just, you know, I, 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 I bring this to your attention. Um, and in kind of like kind of think about how we were going to go forward with any of these things it's like to me is like and I, I've been wondering about this myself a lot in the last uh, four or five days since I saw it okay so with that being said I don't want to skip ahead the, to a, another issue and again there's a lot to talk about here but I don't want to overdo it but I just want to mention it okay so now let's shift gears. So we're going to shift gears now to a, another type of discussion. But and again, I, I would like to do more of this another time. I have to figure out how I would do it. I have to talk to Drisha or Hadar about maybe doing podcasts. I realized that if I was going to really do a lot of these food and chulin issues, this is like a whole year project. So I don't really know. So if you want to email me, benskydell.gmail.com. If I have any thoughts on it, I probably won't. But theoretically, if I have thoughts on how I would like to continue to going forward, I will send it to you. Um, there's two L's there, one, one and no underscore. But apparently in Gmail, I was told, underscores and periods don't are irrelevant. Do you know this? Yeah. Do you know you knew that? Yeah, because I tested it. Because I have a period, but sometimes people forget. And it oh, still works, sure. right? Because the evil Gmail needs to control you no matter what, right? <laughs> exactly. They don't care, right? Literally, they know everything about me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I, I got intensely uncomfortable with whatever, you know. But anyway, be that as it may, you know, um, and the GPS on my phone where the cops are going to come arrest me. Anyway, so, uh, okay. So, so with that being said. Wait, it's Ben's guy, D-E-L-L. Yeah. Two, two, two L's, L's, yeah. At gmail.com. Yeah. It's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Or if you want to, if you want to do my school email, Separate schools. The NSHA, the Commercial Academy, is a completely different school. So they have to, uh, I don't have to work. 
there's apparently some major reason why you have to know that. So if you want, I'll try to keep you informed from going forward with this. I would like to go forward with this, but I'm not, I'm not really sure. But So we'll see about that. Okay, let's do this, and then we will uh, call it a time. So we're going to go a little over the time. I hope, is that okay with everyone? A little bit over? Not too over? Okay. And then we have to do evaluations. Okay, so no, I'm supposed to leave the room and do evaluations because it's very, uh, you know, I'm very intimidating when I'm staring at you and looking at you evaluating me. Okay, now, let's start with the following. A really interesting case. Okay, and, and I, I want you to see with no great irony how this halakha develops. And were you to purely, you know, we're doing this actually from the, the perspective of chulin and from the perspective of kashru and the perspective of food, but this is one of the most, and again, someone has to write this on eventually. From the perspective of gender, this is one of the most amazing, stupefying texts or discussions in, in I think, the history of halakha, really. Um, um, and let me just mention the following you know like some of the Gemara's assumptions about men and women are so and here's a classic case of it right let's just say that you know when it comes to Shlita you know well, it's very bloody right so let me remind you of it. okay there is a when I was a student in YU okay there's an OBGYN who lives in Great Neck her name is Dr. Jacobs you know who she is I don't know what her name her name is Jacobs what's her first name Jessica Jacobs I think Okay, you know, why is she so chashu? Because she's a firm woman. Okay? So when I was in Wayu, everyone who was in the Kolel or whatever, their wives went to Jacobs, right? This woman, so, so I, my wife's original doctor was in the city, and then like, when we moved to Great Neck, we switched, she switched to a doctor in Great Neck. So I go into the, to, to the, operate, to the, to the whatever, the maternity board, and there's a woman in a skirt, scrubs. I said, where the hell do you get that from, right? So, oh no, that's Dr. Jacobs. She has especially me. Now, well, okay, whatever, right? Now, why did the these women go to her as OBGYN? Because, you know, she was from, and she you know, had kids in Kola Law, so whatever it is, and suppose she hasn't taken off a week in, uh, in 20 years because she does so many deliveries, right? So this woman has done literally 10,000 deliveries, right? But if she sees a chicken bleeding a little bit, oh, she's going to faint and drop dead on the spot, right? You know, so I, I went to, right? You know what I mean? I, I, I'm saying, you know, that much blood you're going to deal with. But the woman's done, I mean, you know what I'm saying? So I, I, it was crazy. I, I, I actually thought about it the first time. I was like, I am, and it was specific. Like, like, if you didn't go to Dr. Jacobs, it was like you were, you violated Shabbos by killing a pig, you know, and, and, and feeding it to your kids. And there, I'm not nothing against the woman. I don't even know the woman. I just saw her one time, you know. But the point was, is that like, is when you think about like the assumptions of what men, the difference between men and women are, just bear those out in our current circumstance, right? Okay. Anyway, with that being said. If you want, you can validate. Her name is Jessica James. And if you get the Art Scroll Hilton Nita books, at the second volume, I think, like, when they do all the medical stuff, they said, yeah, we spoke to her because she was, like, the expert and she's from whatever it is. Anyway, so, whatever. Anyway, I think her name is Jessica, I think. But anyway, and why am I mentioning this? Okay, so let's, let's, talk, about, um, let's talk about women being shoftim. Because, you know, again, from the perspective of kashrut, it's fascinating. From the perspective of gender, it's fascinating slash infuriating. So let's start with the first. Okay. First is the very first Mishnah in Masechet Chulon. Okay? The very first Mishnah in Masechet Chulon. Hakol Shochtin Vishrita Tan Shera. Here, turn the page. There we go. Hakol Shochtin, everyone can slaughter Vishrita Tan Shera. And if they do slaughter, it's good. Chutz mi Cheresh Except for a Cheresh. Cheresh is a deaf mute. 
Shota is an imbecile, he translates, or someone clinically insane, the Katan and a child. What is the problem with those people doing a Shlita? Shema yikalkelu b'shlitatam. Lest they invalidate the slaughtering because they didn't make a proper cut. Okay? So, let's just stop for a second here. Okay? We have established that everyone can do a Shlita except for a child, a deaf mute, and an imbecile or clinically ill, mentally ill, right? But the only problem with them is that the cut will not be a valid cut, right? A shlita is requires you to do something wrong. And let's let the mission continues. V'kulan, and all of them, sheshachtu, who shachted, v'acherim ro'inotan, and someone was watching them, shlita tangsherim. The shlita is okay. Okay. Now, if you stop here, that would mean that at a minimum, if you had someone standing there, everyone can shaft, right? Right. At a minimum, there is not a child. My Hannah skied out, who's eight years old, whatever. She, not a good idea. But theoretically, if I were to give her my shlita and I'd show her how to do it, and I'm standing there watching her, it would be totally okay. And the only three people who are excluded from shlita right now are a deaf mute. Why? The assumption the Gemara had was that they were un- ineligible, right? They couldn't be taught. Okay, they didn't have Helen Keller, you know. And so, so you know, the, was the miracle worker, right? <laughs> and they were still the miracle worker. So, so the point is, is um, is that they were considered, you know, if you were deaf, you were considered basically that you could never be educated. Uh, Shota, someone's crazy, or clinically ill, or whatever, or an imbecile, because they don't have control of themselves, right? And a katana child who's not of, you know, of sound mind yet. But even those people, had they, we had we been standing there and said, oh, it was good, I saw it, I, you know, I checked the kind of investor, it's fine, it's okay, right? Okay, now, then the Gemara says, Shlita, now this is actually, not for now, I'll make a two-minute pitch to this line, Mishnah, one of the most important Mishnayot, and I'll tell you why, the next four lines, and the four words in the Mishnah, uh, it, like, it, it blows my mind. Okay, which means the following. The shrita of a non-Jew is a nevela, meaning it is like an animal that was cut. Even if I have a... Uh, I actually have a Hindu neighbor in the five towns. I think that's impossible, but I do actually have a Hindu neighbor in the five towns. So, my Hindu neighbor in the five towns um, shafts the animal. It is not valid. It's considered like an animal that died by itself. And it causes you to become impure, a certain type of impurity, if you carry it like any other piece of nevela. Okay, so generally speaking, we're not so so strict today, but if theoretically, if I were to go into a and or Pathmark and pick up a, a shoulder roast that wasn't shechted properly, so I, it conveys a certain type of tumah impurity. Right? We don't have to worry about it today. But okay. Now. What is significant about this line? Well, this is actually one of the most significant lines, actually, like probably in all of Mishnah. I'll tell you why. So, on the one hand, it tells you, as the Gemara assumes, right, that that only people who are commanded can be called shalchim, right? And that comes into the question of who's included, who's excluded, right? Who's considered commanded or not? But the amazing part is the second part, umitama and you only, it, it, it makes you tame when you carry it. 
Meaning, since it's a nevela, just like if the animal shot in the head or died on the road, and you picked it up, you become tamay. Gemara says, what does it not say? It does not say that it is asur bahana'a. Asur bahana'a means you're not allowed to benefit from it. Why would I think it's asur bahana'a? Because idolaters sacrifice animals to their gods. Right? So if a non-Jew does a slaughter, Gemara says, well, shouldn't I be suspicious that they're doing it for idolatrous purposes? Gemara says, no, most non-Jews don't practice avodah Then the Gemara says, but what about the ones that do practice avodah zara? Now this is what the Gemara says. Gemara says, eh, they don't really mean it anymore. They're just doing what their forefathers, they don't really mean avodah zara. So therefore, even if they did do it for avodah zara, even if they did do it for idolatry, yeah, they don't really believe it anymore. And therefore, the Gemara creates this whole category of people doing idolatrous worship, but since it's really just like an inherited nostalgia and it's not a real belief, they're no longer considered idolaters. Now, on the one hand, you're like, why are you projecting your image on them? But especially in the medieval period amongst Ashkenazic rabbis, this became like a blank allowance for everything. Every time he said, oh, they're, they're worshipable, no, they don't really worship Lazar anymore. No, no, no one really, you know what I'm saying? And they made this general rule that, ah, no one really believes it anymore. I actually had one of my rebellion invoke that in argument once. I, I couldn't believe it. A friend of mine was going to Europe. This was a guy, a Haredi guy with beard and pants, whatever it is. And somebody said, to, he said, well, you know, I'm going to Europe, am I allowed to go you know, see the Sistine Chapel, my ladder go to the Vatican City, whatever it was. He's like, uh, he's like, yeah, you can go. So, he's like, but isn't it Ravodazar? He goes, eh, after the Reformation, no one really believes anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? He's like, yeah, I don't really believe anything anymore. Go, but they're Catholics. Like, eh, even the Catholics don't really believe anything anymore. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, He's like, really? He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Which is a bizarre argument of the highest order. But, right, but it was an actual, and again, I had never, and this was a real Tom Chacham, a serious, serious Tom Chacham, who actually knew history. But, and, and, and he held like, like, halacha, like, yeah, sure, you can go, no problem, don't worry, like, you know, no one really believes anything. Like the guard said, right, they don't, you know, okay, you know, it's just the chapel, it's, all right, it's a piece of art at this point, it's not, you know, like, whatever, no. Which is amazing they said that. But I remember my friends, you know, were very, you know, Sahith at the time. They went, they had no problems. And I can say the name of the person because I don't know if he'd be so comfortable, you know, 20 years later remembering that he actually said that. But, well, 17 years later remembering he actually said that. But that I remember like it was yesterday. We were standing there and that was exactly what he said. Um, so that's just that line in the Gemara is very important, okay? Um, and Mishnah. But you see, if you looked in the Gemara there, like, and you did a search of that Gemara, you, your head will spin from the, from the ramifications of it. But anyway, so then it says, Hashachet Delilah, someone who shafts at night, V'chein Asum, Hashachat, and a blind person, Shafet, Shlitak, Shachera. It's still Kasher, which is really straight. That if you were blind, or if it was at night and you couldn't see, it's still Kosher Shlita. And if you have a light there, even L'chachil, even ideally, you can now listen to this one. That has a major ramification also. If you kill an animal on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, or on Shabbat, even though you should be put to death for it, because it's one of the Malachot, nevertheless, there's two separate issues here. Is it a good Shrita? Did you violate Shabbos? Okay, you did violate Shabbos, but as far as the Shrita goes, oh, you did a good cut, fine. Animal's kosher. 
Right? And there's a lot of... I mean, again, like I said, this could go on forever. We could talk about this for months. It's an amazing, amazing topic. But what you see at a minimum here from this Mishnah is that it is completely inclusive, right? There doesn't seem to be any real exclusion um, that would be attached to this, right? Um, maybe if you wanted to argue that a Jew who... And this is, by the way, where it comes in. A Jew who is like an idolater then wouldn't be a good shofar, right? That's the whole discussion about what type of Jews are considered Jews or not, right? You know, the, the famous Gemara about people who publicly violate Shabbat is here in Chulun, right? It's, which is weird for people. It's not in Shabbat, it's in Chulun, right? Um, because that's the question, right? The question becomes, when does a Jew stop being a Jew? Right? There's quotation marks in the air. Right? But the point is, and that's where this whole discussion comes in the Gemara. Okay. Just as a second point, just to, as a follow-up, it's, I, I can find, send me an email. Send out, yeah, send me, it's, it's in the beginning. It's in the yeah. very beginning. But I, if you send me an email, I'll send you everything. Okay. Um, so the Mishnah Masechet Zvachim then says the following. Okay, now here's just an interesting point. Okay, we know that in the temple there were certain rituals that only the Kohanim could do and certain rituals that even the owner of the sacrifice could do even if it wasn't a Kohanim. Most famously, we'll see in a minute, that the shlita, the killing of the sacrifice, could be done by a non-Kohen. They didn't have to be Kohen. Now, that is, to a certain degree, obviously true for the following reason, right? Um, if you um, if you had the Korban Pesach, right? So you had basically, how, how much meat is on a regular goat? Enough for five, six people, right? A goat or sheep, right? Five, six, ten, ten people maybe. What? Should we know the answer to that? Well, I'm just I'm, I'm thinking out loud. Yeah. It's not that big, right? It's not that much meat. Right? It's like ten people, twenty people, whatever. So if you had all these people come into the temple, there weren't enough kohanim to do all the shrita, right? Which meant that the people had to do the shrita themselves, right? So, this is what the mission says: Kol hapsulim, all unfit people who are unfit people here, non kohanim, right? Kol apsulim, all non kohanim, sheshachtu, who shechted a korban, shechita tan kshera, shechita is good. Shashchita kshera bizarim, that shechita is kosher or is proper or is fitting or is okay, bizarim, with if it's done by non kohanim, binashim if it's done by women, ube avadim and it's done by slaves, freed slaves, ube tmeim and people who are impure. Even holy of holy stuff that's going to be burnt totally on the altar, right? So here you have a Mishnah in Zvachim, which I don't know if it can be getting even clearer that at least when it came to the temple, it is completely, unquestionably okay for non-Kohanim, including women, to do the Shlik. Right? And then the Mishnah just adds one little condition, the one condition is that people who are impure shouldn't touch the meat because then the korban will be in. So the Gemara has this strange notion that you have this super long knife, you know what I mean? So that the, the guy who's impure is like cutting, you know, from across the room. So therefore, the, the doesn't touch, he doesn't touch the meat. Okay, whatever it is, but but be that as it may, that's the only condition to make. Okay, lefichach. Therefore, heim sulim b'machshava. This is another interesting note. When you're doing avodah in the temple. Right when you're doing you're carrying out the sacrificial rite, so if you have an, a wrong thought, I'll talk about what that means in a minute, it can invalidate the korban. Meaning, if I think that I'm going to eat this korban in a month from now, which is invalid, 
So then it invalidates the entire korban. If I think that I'm right. So therefore, when it comes to shlita, which anyone can do, the person doing the shlita has to have the proper mindset. And if they don't have the proper mindset, it invalidates the korban, right? The kulan and all of these people, meaning the non-kohenim, shekiblu adam, they accepted the blood with the condition they said that I'm going to bring the blood on the altar past the proper time or past the pro- or in the wrong place. Doesn't invalidate the sacrifice. Why? Because that's not their responsibility, right? The only way a non-kohen can invalidate part of the sacrifice is the part of the sacrifice they can do, namely the shrita. But the kabbalat hadam, the, the accepting the blood, which they can't do, so what they think is irrelevant because it's not their problem. It's not theirs. It's, it's irrelevant to what they thought because the point is they're not allowed to do it, right? You know, I could have in mind that you know, uh, you know, the Mets should you know should should practice you know suicide squeezing, but the fact is it doesn't matter. I'm not the manager. You know, like whatever I think is irrelevant, right? So it says, and if there is still blood coming out of the neck, so then the coin should go and accept it, and therefore the korban would be kosher. Okay. Now, if you just were to take these two mishnayot in isolation, which is what you should do, but the conclusion you would reach is that women are completely okay to be shochtot, as you see in the Rambam. He says. <laughs> Very clearly, someone who knows the laws of shlita, and he shechted in front of a rabbi until they're an expert in how to do it. That's called an expert. And a mumcha, an expert, can shecht even without anyone watching. Even women and slaves, if they are experts, they can shecht, even no questions asked. So the Rambam is really just a very, very clear uh, summary of the Mishnah, right? Um, so, question Has anyone ever heard here of a woman shochetet? What? Not a Jewish one. Not a Jewish one, right, right. Which is interesting, right? In other cultures, it's like totally normal. But a Jewish one? Has anyone ever said, you know, my grandmother? <laughs> the chef was, no, the grandmother would bring the chickens, right? And then bring it all, right? Yeah, that's what you heard. Oh, so why not? This is really a fascinating uh, state case study in the history. So look, look, look at Tosot here. Tosot says, Katuv b'hilchod Eretz Yisrael, dinashim lo yishchatu mipnei shedatan kalod. Okay, now let's just talk about that sentence. Let's start with the first thing. What is Hilchot Eretz Yisrael? Does anybody know? So Hilchot Eretz Yisrael is a extremely bizarre collection. There is a person named Eldad Hadani. So Eldad Hadani is this um, ninth or tenth century traveler who comes to the Jewish centers of life, I think, in Babylonia, and says, "I am from the lost tribe of Dan, and I know where all the lost tribes are." And he weaves these fantastic tales. One of them is that I was traveling with someone else and we went to Africa and the cannibals captured us and they boiled and cooked my friend and I was in the pot also, but then another tribe attacked and I was saved. He has these wild stories. Whatever his name is, Eldad Hadani. Okay? Very unclear who he is, where he came from, whatever it is. But part of what Eldad Hadani does is he comes with these traditions, I'm doing quotation marks, these traditions from Eretz Yisrael, which are then incorporated in what they call Hilchot Eretz Yisrael, right? So it's already like a very contentious source of halacha. Nonetheless, he says, Tosa says, that in Hilchot Eretz Yisrael, it says women should not shech, mipnei shedatan kalot, because they are uh, lightheaded. You know, women are, you know, 
Don't take them seriously. So therefore, as a result, women should not shaft, right? That's what it says in Hilchot Eretz Yisrael. And Tosfut, absolutely, on no equivocal terms, says this is absurd. Okay, listen to what he says. Ve'ein nira. This doesn't make any sense to me. Ta'fil b'muktashim shachtod l'chachila. Because I'm reading Parakol Apsulim. Kol Apsulim shachtu. Oh wait, we have that in a minute. So he says like this. What does it say in Chulim, in Zvachim? It says in Zvachim that women are allowed to shaft l'chachila, right? So how do you say that women are not allowed to shaft if, if when... Uh, please pay attention to the argument. If even in the temple they're allowed to shaft, Allah had come and come outside the temple, right? We'll see that that argument in the 20th century is put on its head. But we'll see that a little bit later, right? But the, 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 the Tosa is saying, look, look if the, the, the Mishnah lets women shaft in the temple, well, you know, to shaft the chicken in the backyard, why not, right? Well, we was... And it says, and he says even further, he says, as we say in the Gemara, this is the Gemara in, in Zvachim, this is what he said. The language of the Mishnah in Zvachim is as follows, right? All of the non-fit who shechted. That is a language of what we call bidyev, right? It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive, right? It's not saying everyone can shecht. It's saying if they shechted, then it's okay. That seems to be a language of bidyev. If it happened, it was okay, but ideally we shouldn't allow it, right? So the Gemara in Zvachim says, so why that language? Why that language of bidyev? What is it about the Mishnah that leads them to want to write in a second best type of way. And what does the mission say? Because who is included in the list of people who can shaft? A tame, an impure person. Because ideally, we don't want an impure person to shaft because they may come to touch the meat, right? And what does Tosa say? The Gemara never says it's bidyevet because it's including women, right? Because the only one in that list in Zvachim that is bidyevet, if not ideal, is the tummy. And everyone else, including women, are totally l'chachil, right? So therefore, Tosfut says that if the, Gemara, if the Gemara wanted to intimate that women shouldn't shaft at all, it should have at least made some hint. But it doesn't intimate it at all. And so therefore, according to Tosfut, it's coming to tell you that l'chachil, it's totally okay. And then the Gemara asks another question. Tosfut asks another question. Well, if that's the case, and you look later on Tosfot, there's a halacha called tmura. Tmura means that sometimes I have one animal that I designate for temple and I want to switch with another animal, right? So in the Mishnah, in the beginning of the Sechet Tmura, it says, right? Everyone can do this law of tmura, men and women. So Tosfot says, well, if that's the language of both men and women are ideally allowed to do it, why did it say that in Zvachim? Or in Shulim? So he says, I'll tell you why. This is really interesting how, how high we had time. It says, in the Torah, when it says the language of Tmura, it says always masculine language. So therefore, if I were to just read the Torah, I would think the Tmura is only for men. Therefore, the Mishnah has to say men and women, right? When it comes to Shrita, it never intimates only men. It's really the distinction is perhaps you could have articulated is between Kohanim and non-Kohanim, right? That's not a distinction between men and women. There's plenty of men who are non-Kohanim, right? So therefore, according to him, it would not even need to say men and women are allowed to shaft because why would you even think that, right? And therefore, according to Tosfot, absolutely on all certain terms, women are allowed to shaft, completely rejects the Chodar Yisrael, says, and therefore, again, it's interesting, right? Chodar Yisrael, which is the fantasies of perhaps a deranged, whatever, he says, well, you know, we use the Talmudic evidence, not the evidence of someone who, you know, travels and talks about being boiled alive, right? And if you turn the page... To the to the rush in Masechet Chulin, the rush says the exact same argument 
um, is Tosvot, which she often does, right? The Russians oftentimes just digest of Tosvot, right? Not always, but often. And if you look in the end, last line says, Ve'oto chacham, and this wise man, Shekatav Hilchot Yisrael, who wrote Hilchot Yisrael, Katuv Chumrot Midato. He makes up chumras on his own, right? He makes astringencies on his own mind, right? He just makes things up. So, you know, we're not beholden to someone making things up. It's already an interesting line, right? We are not beholden to people who make things up on their own. Halavai would be so, but okay. But the point is, is, is right, Rush is making a very clear argument. Like, look, Talmudic evidence is A, and someone makes something up B, so why am I worried about B when Talmudic evidence is A, right? Like I said, Halavai would be so. Anyway, so... Um, and, okay, so that's that. Now, you get to the Beit Yosef, and the Beit Yosef um, is the commentary of Rav Yosef Kara, who writes the Shulchan Aruch, on the tour, right? And Beit Yosef, uh, you know, if you ask me what is the greatest work, look, the greatest work ever written in rabbinic literature, if you ask me personally, not that that really makes that much of a difference, but were you to ask me the greatest work ever written, it's the Mishnah Torah. Because the Mishnah Torah is, is another universe. First of all, it's clarity of language, and it's precision and the fact that you're writing on everything, right? The Rambam decides to write on everything and so I, oh, it amazes me that someone could actually do that. I'm not a big fan of the Rambam, but I'm in awe of the Rambam. You understand? That's the difference, right? I'm totally in awe. Look, you have the man who wrote the single most significant work of Jewish philosophy and the single most important work of Halakha and it's the same person and if you would erase those two works from his canon and just take his other words, he would be one of the five most significant figures in the history of the Jewish people. Then you add those two things. It's a, I'm, in, I'm in awe of it. I agree with it, but I'm in awe of it. You know what I mean? Lahavdil Elif Al You know, I was a kid. I was a huge Knicks fan, right? So Michael Jordan used to beat the Knicks every single year. I hated Michael. I don't hate the Rambam. But I'm saying I hated Michael Jordan. But I, what am I going to do? I mean, what am I, an idiot? You know I mean? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Now again, it's Elif Alfei Abdullah, but I'm just, you know, I'm, whatever. I apologize. <laughs> but, but the point is, is, is I'm, in, I'm in awe of the man, right? It's like, uh, how do you even, do, how, how, one lifetime, and he worked, right? The job as a doctor, how the hell do you do that? I have no idea, right? You know what I mean? They don't make them like that. They, they never did. The boys, they never made them like that. Right? I, don't, I don't know what world a human being can actually do things like that. But, but be that as it may, okay? Um, but the, the, that's the greatest work I've written. The greatest ever work I've compiled is the Beit Yosef. That's like also how a person, especially before computers with manuscripts, how you would write something like the Beit Yosef. You have so many things so organized. It's amazing, right? What? Right, or he went, let let, them, let an angel talk to him, right? Yeah. But I'm saying I could never do it. I, I could never do it. So anyway, look at the Beit Yosef. He writes like this. He says, Umashikat of Nashim. He says, Kain Kat Vutosu Bereshkula. Delo Kilcharaitz Israel. Now this is an interesting point. He adds in that the reason for Hilchot Eretz Yisrael is that women can't shech because they are of weak constitution and they may faint. Now, the problem of that argument just inherently is the following. We are also nervous that men may faint. That's why you have to prove that you can do it, right? So the simple thing would be, you ask a woman, can you do this? And if she can do it, so then you'll know, oh, hey, you're not fainting. But, right, so making the general, it's already interesting, the generic statement about gender that all women are of weak constitution are going to faint is already like an interesting discussion of itself, okay? Um, um, and then he writes, And the poskin all agreed to Tosvot that women can jacht. Now listen to these next two quotations. Which is another Ashkenazi Rishon, Katav. Sha'afal pi, Shadara Poskim came. 
I want, you really got to concentrate on this argument. It's an amazing argument. Even though the opinion of the poskin is that women can't Israel, the minhag in all of the communities of the exile, shalo yishvatu. The women don't. And I have never seen any woman chef. Therefore, you are not allowed them. To, you're not allowed to allow them to chef. Because a minhag uproots halacha, minhag avotenu Torah. Now that is like an exceptionally packed sentence. So let's unpack each. Number one is he's saying that the, because the minhag is everywhere, that women don't shecht. So first of all, it is not the minhag everywhere. Yeah, how do they know that? Right. So that's where like one of the more interesting questions of when you make a statement that this is what everyone does, when in fact not the case that it's what everyone does. Well, how does that? The classic 20th century example of this, just as an example. They asked for Moshe Feinstein about having bar mitzvah ceremonies. Absolutely not. Shumofen, why? Who's the first person who had a bar mitzvah in America? Mordechai Kaplan. So this is who we're going to imitate? So Moshe said, absolutely not. We Jews don't have bar, celebrate bar mitzvahs. Except for the fact that in Sparta countries, they did celebrate bar mitzvahs. But how was Moshe supposed to know what they did in Baghdad, right? So it's an interesting question. What do you do now that we know that in fact they did do that, right? A lot of great rabbinic writing has a certain, you know, veil of ignorance that cloaks it. And the question is a general, bigger question. Like in a world post history, what do you do when once the the veil has been lifted, you know? Um, but again, that's a, you know, we're we're, we're you know, not. But anyway, so 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 that's a a claim a the algorithm is making. Number one is we've never seen this. Uh, sorry, no one does this. Number two is. Since we've never seen that, can't we can't be happen because it's a minhug. Now, first of all, that's a really interesting claim also. You have a minhug of we haven't seen. Usually a minhug is we have seen, right? Uh, uh, you know, yeah, uh, Bells Hasidim bring their kids to the mikveh every Shabbos starting at age 12. I, don't, I just made that up. Why? Because I go to the mikveh in Bells and there's 12-year-olds, right? It's a really easy minhug for me to establish. I see it, right? Uh, you know, um, Lubavitchers only eat gebrachs on the last day of Pesach. How do I know? Because when I went to a Chabad house, they wouldn't eat any matzah with any water in it except for the last day. It's really easy for me to tell you what that minhug is because I see it, right? To make a minhug of we haven't seen and therefore it's a minhug, right? How is that different from Ashkenazim not eating kidney or that? Well, it's, first of all, we justify the right? When it comes to kidney, right? We, there is a re- we say, we eat kidney, we don't eat kidney because we, for argument's sake, there were grains found in right. the thing, right? So there at least is a justified minhag, right? Here the minhag is not justified, just we haven't seen it, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, oftentimes when it comes to minhag, and we don't, yeah, there are we don't do things, right? But there's a reason why we don't do them. Here there's no... It's just saying we haven't seen it, right? And we'll see, by the way, that's an exceptionally problematic proof. That we'll see in a few minutes. Um, and then he says, Ki minhag halacha, that a minhag can uproot a halacha, which is an exceptionally controversial claim, but not for now, but an exceptionally controversial claim. And the minhag of our fathers is like Torah, also an exceptionally controversial claim, one that is invoked oftentimes in Ashkenaz um, by Tosvot, and I think in the Yerushalmi, but in the Bavli not, and many Sephardic posts can... Or not fans of that. Then the 
Yosef continues, Vani Omer, and I say, Shim Haya Omer, Shahi Rotolishkot, Velohi Nichun, Haya Afshalomashi Raya. Achriyat, Lorainu, Enorai. He says, listen, if you would have said, I have seen women come to the rabbis, you have the, the rabbi's daughter, and says, New Friday, what do you want to do when you grow up? And she says, I want to be a Shochei Tati. He says, Chas Vashalom, we don't allow such a thing. Okay, so then, yeah, maybe that's a proof, right? But the fact that just total absence, this is not a proof. We'll see where that comes from in a minute. And therefore, he says that it's okay. This is not an argument. And then he says, V'katava kolbo. And the kolbo said that Harav Yitzchak, who's the, one of the Balei Tosfot who wrote the Sefer Mitzvah Katan, Katav, he wrote, Shanashim shochtot latzman. The women can shaft for themselves. Mash mashen shochtot lacher. Implying that they can't shaft for other people. So he says, V'davar zeh tam temo. That doesn't make any sense. If the law is a law of kashrut, so I can check for myself, but for you I can't, why not? I mean, I have to eat kosher just like you have to eat kosher, right? So he says, 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 So and the, the imbecile in the Mishnah, they can shaft even if someone's not watching. So therefore, the Beit Yosef has this very strong thrust that women shafting is completely okay, no questions asked. And if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, that's exactly what he says. Look in the next source. Right? Everyone can shaft, even women. Okay? Very, very clear. Shulchan Aruch has no problem with it. Now, the Ramah there says, Yeshom Rim there are those that say you should not allow women to shecht. Shikfar nagu because that's the, the minhag. V'chein minhag she'ena v'chein haminhag, and that is the minhag she'ein anashim shechtah. Now, what's the problem with this minhag? The problem with this minhag is the following: What is the basis of the minhag that we haven't seen it? Right now, explicitly, explicitly, the Mishnah rejects that premise. Okay, not implicitly, but explicitly, the Mishnah rejects the premise. If you look in the Mishnah, in the Sechet Adio, and that's the next two sources on the page, it tells about Rabbi Hanina Skanakon, and Rabbi Hanina was the, the chief or the administrator of the priests, and he testified a few things he saw about the priests, right? That they, if you turn to the second Mishnah, he says the following, Amr Rabbi Hanina Skanakon, Miyamai Loreiti Orshi Yotzele Beda Sreifa, so says the following. I have never seen the following. We know if an animal is tummy, so then the skin is tummy, right? And the koanim can't use it because the koanim can't use the tummy skin, right? If the animal is tahor, they can use the skin. A lot of the times, you don't figure out if the animal is tummy until after you do an internal exam after the skin has been, you know, skinned off, right? So Rabbi Chanina Skanakonim says like this, that if it turned out that it became, after the fact, we did the Badika afterwards, we figured out that it was Tameh, so do we say that as long as we didn't know when we took the skin off, then it's okay? Or do we say that if we found out after the fact, it should be burned? So what's Rabbi Chanina Skanakonim say? I've never seen them burn a hide. And since I've never seen them burn a hide, I assume that that's because you don't have to burn the hide. Right? So even if you found that after the fact that the animal's tummy, it doesn't matter. Once the hide was taken off and you still assume the animal's tower, it's okay. Right? He says, I've never seen it. 
turn to the end of the Mishnah, the Chachamim Omrim, and the rabbis say, Lo ra'inu eno raya. That is not the proof. The fact that you have not seen something is not a proof. Maybe you never had this case. Maybe it didn't come up. Maybe you were absent that day. Maybe you had a cold. But lo ra'inu, according to the Mishnah, eno raya. It's not a proof. So, Ella, yotzil Rather, it should be burned, the rabbis say, right? So, it's amazing cases is that here you have the proof of the Agur, which is that, look, we've never seen women shot, so therefore the Minhag is that they can't, the Mishnah explicitly rejecting it and saying, no, lo ra'inu ain't a ra'in. That's not a proof. A, an absence of evidence is not the, the, what is it, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, something like that, right? It's not a proof, right? It doesn't prove to you something that I haven't seen, right? I, whatever, you know. So therefore, as a result, the whole contention is tenuous, right? The whole contention is tenuous. Meaning, Mitam halacha, it's not a problem, as Tosfot has eloquently pointed out. And the Beit Yosef is really the only source. Well, the Beit is going against it. He's quoting the Agur, right? Yeah. He himself he says this doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Uh, he's the one who invoked Lo Ra'inu. I skipped it, but he's the one who said, what are you talking about? We have a mission that says that this is not a, a law of evidence. I've not seen something, it's not a proof of anything. So Mitam Minog, it shouldn't be okay, right? Except if you look here in the Shach, the Shach writes, that maybe it, when the Mishnah says lo ra'inu ain't ra'i, it means for halacha. But for minhag, it is a proof. Meaning, now, of course, now logically, I don't know how this works out. Although one of my students yesterday tried to explain it to me, so you'll tell me if this makes any sense. So what the shach is saying is like, you're right when it comes to actual halachot. So the fact that I haven't seen anything is not a proof. But no one's arguing it as a halacha, right? We're saying a minhag. A minhag could be what people do, and the fact that I've never seen it is proof that people don't do it, right? Now, of course, so that's the argument the Shach is making. Okay, that is the argument the Shach is making, right? Now, logically, can you make that distinction? I guess you can make the distinction. If all Minhag is, is what people do, well, then you're right. If I haven't seen people do it, maybe it, it is a proof, right? But if a Minhag is what people do, but the fact is, look, you know, I may live in a town where no women want to be sheltered. I, I teach in, in a school where there are 200 young women there. Not one has expressed desire ever of being a, a, a showcase. So that's not a proof that they can. There's a proof that no one wanted to do it, right? And not only that, you can take a step further. There is proof that people did do it, right? We have copies of Kabbalot for women them in Italy in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Right? There's all the speculation as to why they had women them. One of the reasons they think is that during the summer, the women would go away to the countryside and the men would stay at home and therefore there was no Tashach meat except for the women. But be that as it may, we have traditions of women them, right? There are, is though, such few evidence, such little evidence. I mean, I, it would make more sense that women wore, wore yeah, I agree, and, and look, I don't know if it's interesting, like, if they had to write out Kabbalah for it, right? Right. I mean, it could be the Kabbalah may have only been for the public shochet and not for the, you know, women did it in her own, you know, whatever. Uh, if they have to have. And right, and, they're, they're, but, and it, it, look, the, the fact is, in many of the Sephardic rabbis, this, this comes up up until very recently. Of the still have tradition, and supposedly I, I, the Yemenite Jews already had a tradition until yeah. you know like twenty years ago, whatever it is, of women who did still were shochtot, right? But what's amazing here is what they follow Rambam, right? Right, right. Well, a lot of them, right? Right, the Dardaim, right? Follow Rambam for everything. There's, there's, there's two groups. There's like the whatever, the Dardaim are the more rationalist ones. So they, uh, if you, uh, you have to find the Yemen, the Yemeni to explain to you the difference. I have a hard time figuring. But anyway, but be that as it may. Um, so that's it. Now the question is, where did this? How did this fall into disfavor? So, 
here you have, um, and I summarize this for you, if you want to see the actual source inside. So this is a, a really actually amazing work. And I'm not going to... Um, there's a sefer called Darche Tshuva on Shulchan Aruch Yeridea. It's written by Rizvi Hirshviro of Munkach, who was the Munkach Rebbe. And it is this unbelievable digest, or super commentary on Yeridea, which is like, if you ever read the Mishnah Buru, this is like blown up a thousand times. Um, he re- and he, he really hits all the notes. He's like amazing. So he summarizes the following. Here, I put it in English here. It says, Rabbi Tzvi Hirshpira, or Spira, of Munkach, Hungary, has summarized the women of leading Ashkenazic authorities for excluding women from Shlita. What's interesting is, right, so the Ashkenazic rabbis then, later on, post-Shulchan Aruch, still have to justify the practice, right? So here are the reasons. Number one, a woman cannot be sufficiently learned in Shlita laws. This is an interesting contention they bring up, right? Look, we don't teach women Torah, so how could we possibly know the laws of Shlita? So the point is, okay, even if you want to take a very strict position on teaching women Torah, there is a clear thrust in the tradition that if you, you need to know the laws that are relevant to you, right? So if you're going to become a shokhe, that's just like, you know, having keep in kosher kitchen. Shlita is the same thing, right? As a matter of fact, especially since once upon a time, if you were suspicious of the shokhe, this is, it's in the Simon Chadasha, so one of the things you could do if you weren't so sure about the shokhe is ask him, A, to see his knife, B, to see the cut. To see the cut. To the cut of the yeah. knife. So you need to know what you're looking at, right? I mean, see your knife. If, I, you know, if no one learned, you know, what is it, if I don't know what I'm looking at, what am I looking at, right? I want to feel your knife. What am I feeling for, right? I want to look at the throat. If I, like, like, put it this way. If I were to, theoretically, you know, bring a, a chicken, a dead chicken here and say, okay, fine, tell me if the cut is good. No, no one's going to know how to do that, right? Because no one learned it, right? So in a world where that's actually relevant, so that, that, but again, that was one contention they made. Two, a woman might faint during the act of slaughtering. We saw that, again, also easy to... They are careless. Okay. They are lazy and would not learn the laws properly. This is already an, an, a very ironic notion. Look, the, one of the questions of why men should do B'dikat Chametz is, you know, can't trust women for these things. You know, they're not going to take it so seriously. So somebody said, well, if women were doing most of the cleaning, why would you even assume that? So I actually think that makes sense because the man who only cleans the house one time a year is going to go crazy versus someone who cleans it every single night, right? You know what I'm saying? You know, like, you know, it's very easy for you if you're only going to clean the house one time to, you know, run around with a, a, night, uh, yeah, a, 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 a candle underneath everything and say, you know, this is my, you know, one time I'll be a, I'll be a sport, right? I, oh, whatever. <laughs> but, but even still, look, you know, this, it's, it, it falls apart a little bit in the sense that, like, when it came to most cautious matters, it was in the domain of women, right? Yeah. So why this as opposed to other things, right? Yeah. Soaking and salting, right? So women did the, presumably did the soaking and salting, right? Whether they keeping the pots and pans kosher, right? This was all mostly, okay, but whatever. And five, there is some doubt in the matter, and doubt in biblical law is always the side of the strict side. That's actually a really bad argument because there is no doubt. I mean, that's saying suffix do right to It's not a suffix do right. It's a suffix of a minhag, right? It's just doubt of a minhag. But none of these. But again, what's interesting is you kind of have to reconstruct the reason for the exclusion, right? This is an amazing case here. The thrust of the tradition is that it's okay. The whatever want to say that it's not okay, and you have to then make up awful arguments why it's not okay, right? Which, you know, the counter-arguments are always strong. I'll give you another unbelievable example. The Aruch HaShulchan writes, he's writing in the 1900s in Russia, in Navardic, so the Aruch HaShulchan says that the reason why you don't have women to be shofim is the following, is because, even though they were allowed to do so in the temple, right, 
But in the temple, people are so nervous about everything, they can be very, very strict and very, very careful. But at home, eh, no big deal. So if I screw up a korban, it's a big deal. But if I eat something, not kosher, not such a big deal. Which is the exact flip side of Tosot's argument, right? Tosot said, well, if you do it in the temple, obviously you can do it at home, right? Because so they're saying, no, you can only do it in the temple because it, right, you know what I'm saying? You, you literally have to flip arguments on their head to, to justify the continued exclusion, right? And perhaps the most absurd version of this argument, and I'll leave it at that, is they put out a sefer of Rabbi Salvechik Shurim on Yeridei and on Shrita. And he has an argument there, which if anyone wants, I can reproduce a copy for you, where he says, well, look, you know, the reason why once upon a time it was okay was because it was a private matter. Now that you have to give a Kabbalah, you have to give a Tudah, right, a license to Shaft, it's a public appointment. And we know that the Rambam excludes women from public appointments, so therefore, just like a woman can't be a rabbi or a chazan or a shul president, so too you can't be a shulchan. Why, why do you think he wanted to keep women from being a shulchan? I don't know why. I, I don't even like, know. I don't know why you make such an argument because I cannot imagine Boston in 1950. There, you know, like all of a sudden women are like allowed to go to college for the first. You know, women are going to Harvard and and, and you know and Brandeis and Boston University. All of a sudden they're like running to him in Boston, saying, "By the way, I also want to be showcased." Like, I don't, you know, it doesn't. The whole, I don't, I don't get this context. I don't get the social history. The arguments are, are literally every one of the arguments is is so like literally there's like ten parts of each argument that fall apart by themselves. Yeah, I just don't really understand where the concern was. Right. I mean, somebody pointed out in social history, there's one interesting point that they that he points out, which is interesting, right? That the Shrita, which Shrita used to be a private affair, now it's public. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that... That's that actually interesting. The reason, yeah, the problem is, is A, to say that being a Shokhei is a public appointment. That would only be if you were the town Shokhei and no one else can practice here. Of course, that does not apply at all, because I, I would ask you, the town you come from, who's town Shokhei, you have no answer to that, because there's such a process, thing does not exist anymore. That's number one. Number two is it's not clear that the Ram that that's the type of position. The Ram says a woman cannot be a queen and any maybe national appointment. That does not mean you know to be the, the, the district court judge in charge of traffic tickets would also be a queen. Okay, there's a million reasons why this argument makes absolutely no sense. Okay, uh, it, it, whatever. And I, but the point being is, is it's an argument that's made. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, um, but be that as whatever. I, 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 I'm going to have an ulcer if I continue. But the point is, 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 is that's, that's where we stand today. Um, it's just a really fascinating thing. Now, I was interested in wondering, like, you know, some of the students that I taught were really interested in trying to revive the tradition of women shokhta, right? And I was always wondering, would there be anyone willing to teach them? So one of the men there said, look, you know what? I would learn to be shokhta, so then I could teach women, because right now we're, like, two generations removed. It's like a place like Drisha, so you had to have the men who were willing to teach women Talmud, and then a generation later you could have then women who could teach women Talmud, right? So we are, if at all, we're at the threshold of that first, you know, not, we're in 1978 now, if at all. Um, but it's actually like a really fascinating type of halachic and religious and social history that the really strong halachic argument is to totally allow, and the totally weak conjecture argument is to disallow. And all the rules of halakha, all the rules of psaq, all the rules of evidence go one way, and still the it's custom... It's harder to take this way, you know? Like, <laughs> like, like, because all of the weighty arguments are in favor of women. Right, right, right. Why, you know, why are they trying? Yes, to and it's one of the, you know, it's, it's amazing because like this, like, if you want to make like a... Sh- like, you want to say women should learn certain things, it says so in the shulchan, okay, that's an argument. You want, to, you want to say women shouldn't do it? Okay. So it's a okay. I can hear that, right? But this, 
Here's Shulchan what, what, You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, this is the clear, literally the clearest example of this. But okay, whatever, it is what it is. Um, but it would be interesting to see if people wanted to revive this tradition and then to kind of like um, see what the opposition would be. Which would be like, you know, like, are you, like, like you can ask people, are you, really gonna, are you really making that claim? Like, is this the claim? Like, really? Really, you're going to make that claim, right? Shacharov says, okay. Tulsa says, okay. Rush says, okay. Ram says, okay. You know what I mean? Any argument has been totally refuted. So you please go ahead. You know what I mean? And again, like, okay. What's interesting is, you know, Dr. Chuv and Narach Shulchan and Rebbe any of these arguments can be made because, look, there was no push the other way, right? It's like saying, you know, you know, no women can be mass murderers. Okay, you know, I don't really want to mass murder. So, but the point is, once you actually have a push the other way, then what do you do? But anyway, be that as it may, there's much more to talk about. Send me an email, see where I'm going with this, uh, if I have anything to say. Thank you all very much.